Well, thank you for inviting me to speak with you this morning. And um, I'd like to start by, if you remember, or those of you that aren't members of Second, every year there is a Christian Life Conference. And so a couple speakers are, are brought in to talk about various topics. And a few years ago, a fellow named Stuart Briscoe was one of the speakers. And Stuart is literally this Christ follower who is a world citizen. He's an elderly man now and has been involved uh, throughout his life in a variety of incredibly interesting things of bringing light into darkness and coming alongside and, and uh, helping make a difference in a variety of different ways in a, a variety of different circumstances and situations. He's a pastor, he's an evangelist, he's a writer, uh, and, and, and uh, just strong in faith. But one thing that he's also great at is storytelling. And one of the stories that he told when he was here is he's talked about the fact that in all his travels, literally around the world, that he said he'd been with kings and with paupers, with people in a wide range of nations, different cultures, different backgrounds, and emphasized in that story just the diversity or the differences that are part of our world. But what he said is, he said that in all of his travels, he had found that there's one thing that everyone worldwide agrees on. And you're just interested in that. What would that be? And he said, what we all agree to, what we all agree on, is that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And there's truth to that. And if you think about for yourself, from uh, looking at the world, or looking at our nation, or looking at our city, or looking at our family, or looking at ourselves, we know deep inside that things are just not quite the way they're supposed to be. There's a social psychologist uh, who is, uh, whose name is David Myers, and he is quite famous for his work on the area of happiness. And in looking at happiness, he not only has uh, done a lot of the research, but he's collected the research in order to look at what is it at the end of the day makes us happy. And uh, he has a blog at a website called davidmyers.org. He's a Christian as well as a, a researcher, well-respected. And it's fascinating because when you look at the literature about what brings happiness, it's radically different than how we think from our point of view, our cultural point of view, of what it is that brings happiness. And like that old um, country western song, we end up sometimes looking for love in all the wrong places. And so when he looks at the literature in terms of longitudinal studies about who finishes well, who's satisfied ultimately in life, what they find in looking at the literature, again, apart from a faith base, but just as people look at their lives, what the literature says is that there's two things that we want that brings a certain amount of happiness. The first thing is, is we want to believe that our life has meaning and purpose. We want to believe that what we do makes a contribution in some way. And then the second thing that the literature shows is that we want, at the end of our lives, to believe that we've made a difference in some way. And so if you think about that for your own life, if you think about that for our world, that notion about wanting to believe that what we do is meaningful and wanting to believe that we leave a legacy, that we leave something behind. But if you look at it, we also are in some ways world citizens. Even if you've never been out of Tennessee, because of the internet, because of the news, we just see in this world so many different philosophies. We see so many different ways that people find meaning and purpose. We find so many different ways in which people say, this is the right way to walk, or this is how life should be lived. And so we're left sometimes wondering, what is it 
at the end of the day that I want to focus on. How do I live well? How do I finish strong? Paul planted a lot of churches, but also there were churches that he didn't plant, that other people did, and um, that he heard about. And some of the letters he wrote uh, in the New Testament were to some of these churches where he never had met them personally but really wanted to encourage them, as he as an apostle, church planter, really wanted to see the gospel grow and see Christians mature. And so the church where the Colossians lived, a small church, another man, another group of people had planted that church. And when Paul wrote the book of Colossians, likely he was sitting in prison in Rome, and one of the leaders who was so faithful in planting that church had come to see him, and had, he heard all about the church, and so then he writes the letter of Colossians to them to encourage their faith and to talk with them about what it meant to live a life that was worthy and meaningful. And so as he starts out in this, in this, uh, in this book, he talks about how he gives thanks to God for them, how he prays for them without ceasing, and that all over the world the gospel, their work is being heard of, there was fruit and they were growing, and he's excited for them. He's excited about what it is that's happened in their lives and what's happening in the community because of their, their congregation. And then he starts saying to them, starting in verse 9, he says to them, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul is praying for them in the same way that we pray for ourselves and each other, which is how in the world do we know what it means to live a worthy life? How do we know what to do in terms of being filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding? Because again, for those of us that are believers, obviously the core of our faith is that we're creatures, not the creator, and that we were created in order to be a follower of God through his son and that we want to live a life not only that we have a future glory or future is secure in heaven, but what does that mean to live well, live fully humanly in this world? And so Paul is saying to them, I pray for you that you will know what that looks like. And then he says this in verse 10, and I pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Now, in the translation I'm reading from, and in others, there's a colon right there. Now, we know in the original text that there wasn't punctuation. It all kind of moved along. But I remember reading this passage several years ago, and I'm reading along, and usually you, you read the introduction pretty fast and then kind of get into the letter. But in reading it slowly, that notion about wanting to please God in every way, and then here's this colon. And a colon means that what is about to be said is going to be a descriptor for, or it's going to take what was a topic sentence or a general statement, and then start to flesh that out. And so in this particular passage, Paul then says to them these four things that he identifies, at least in writing to them, of what it means to live a life worthy of the Lord and to please him in every way. And so Paul goes on, in the handout that I gave you, um, I went ahead and I just broke those out into individual statements rather than them all just kind of running together. And Paul said that to please the Lord in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that we may have great endurance and patience, and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you 
to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What I'd like to focus on this morning is to talk about each of those four things that Paul identifies as things that please God. And I want us to look at those for a couple reasons. One is, is that longing to know what is it that brings meaning and purpose to my life? What ought I to focus on? What ought I to pay attention to? But second of all, often for many of us, we have very mixed feelings about God and about how God sees us. I remember years ago, I did a retreat for a group of about 30 people, and they'd asked if I'd speak about kind of the love and the mercy of God. And so at the beginning, I did this little survey where I had people anonymously answer some questions, kind of, kind of fill in the blank, kind of complete this sentence. And so I asked, you know, how do you, what do you believe about God? And what do you believe that God believes about you? And so kind of getting at how people were looking at that from a theological point of view. But then one author talks about what he calls our theology and then our neology. Our theology is our beliefs about God and how we can articulate faith. But he said our neology is how we feel about God and how we feel God feels about us when we're on our knees praying. So both those two elements of faith, that notion of, a, of, a, of an understanding, an intellectual understanding, and then an experiential connection, what, what uh, Eugene Peterson calls spiritual theology, knowing about but living in relationship with. And it was so interesting because the 30 people that were at the retreat were all believers. And in their answers to the question about how they felt about God and how they felt God felt about them, 27 of the 30 had something in there about, I kind of worry God's getting just a little tired of me because I know this particular sin pattern in my life. I know that despite my best effort, I keep falling short. I know that, and so from a human point of view, the thought is, you know, if I were God, I'm not sure that I'd be all that gracious towards me at times. And it's easy for us to feel that way when we think about God from the point of view of how we would think about others if we were him. And we live in this culture, we live in this world that's so much performance-based. Or so much that worth is based on performance or on production or on appearance or about those thousand other things. Maybe now it's how many Facebook friends, I don't know. But we, we have our, our benchmarks in our own head for where we stack up, how we compete. And so when Paul talks here about saying this is what pleases God, I want us to look at that with eyes wide open in terms of saying these are the things that are important to him. And more importantly, we see in the midst of this passage in these four things, a tremendous love for us and a tremendous understanding of our human frailties and a total understanding about why on a daily basis we need to depend on grace, what God has provided for us as we look at this, at this, at this passage. So, bearing fruit in every good work. Okay, the question is, is what's good work? What's good work? How do we know what that is? And from a biblical point of view, there's really two concepts that I'd like to mention uh, and just spend time on briefly in talking about good work. First of all, there is a, a, a principle in the Old Testament, a term that was called the shalom. 
And we think of that word shalom as being synonymous with peace, which it is, the lack of, con- of conflict, the, the, the healing of relationship. It's the bringing the shalom. But what that term meant in a, in a, a broader sense was this notion of everything in its right place, that shalom is that things are as they were meant to be. A couple Sundays ago, Sandy, in one of his sermons on uh, Ephesians and talking about the, the armor that we put on as Christians, talked about Satan and talked about, and, and he said a statement that was just so, at least to me, it just really caught my attention. He said that Satan hates anything that God loves. Satan hates anything that God loves. And so while we live in a Western culture that we uh, broker on rationalism and A plus B equals C, there really is this spiritual warfare. There is this life around our life. There is this drama that we're a part of as we become Christians and as we're followers of Christ. God hates sin. But the reason that God hates sin is because sin is anything that breaks the shalom, anything that breaks the peace. And God created the world, and he created us in love. And in creating us in love, that when something gets messed up, God's not ticked because you messed up my creation. Okay? God is angry because that which he created in love is being broken. And the core of sin is that relational brokenness, whether it's how we treat the earth, to how we treat each other, to how we treat ourselves. And why God hates sin is because he literally created us to be in connection with him and created us prior to the fall to have that sense of life as creatures that was full and meaningful and absolutely fantastic. When you and I came to faith, literally part of what we have chosen to do in answering God's call is to sign on to be shalom bringers. That's what good work is about. It's everything from picking up that piece of trash that's on the side rather than like, where's that janitor? Why don't they get this cleaned up? To how we treat people in business, to how we treat people in relationships, to how we treat ourselves in terms of developing that sense of what does it mean to bring the peace? What does it mean to bring things, everything in its right place? And so we know from the New Testament, Christ talked about it, Paul talked about it, is this notion that literally we are Christ's hands and feet. We are God's hands and feet. We are not just his representatives in the world. Uh, Christ talks about that the world can judge whether he even came by how we demonstrate love, how we bring the shalom, which is really kind of stout when you think about that. But at the end of the day, that's what we are. That's the meaning and purpose. That's what good work is, is that notion about being shalom bringers. And each one of us lives our lives in different contexts, in different spheres, in different orbs. And so that term can mean very, very different things to each of us. But what draws us together is, as Christ followers, we're shalom bringers. The second principle, or the second passage that I want to look at, or the principle about this notion of good work, is found in John 15. And as you know, that that John, starting with John 13, Christ is having this last supper with his disciples. He knows what's about to happen. And so he starts in John 13 by demonstrating what it means to live humanly by what? By washing the disciples' feet. And he starts by saying, look, this is what this life lived meaningfully is about, is this notion about being able to be a servant 
And Peter, as you know from reading that passage, is scandalized. He doesn't want Christ to wash his feet. That's below this Savior that he follows. And yet again, Christ uh, confronts him on that and talks to him about why it is that he's doing that. And then Jesus says that he'll be betrayed, and then Jesus talks about that he'll be leaving, and then he talks about it, and the disciples are totally freaked by that because they can't stand the thought of Jesus not being there with them. And then he talks about that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And then starting in, verse, in chapter 15 and into 16 and 17, we have this prayer that Christ prays. And kind of you think about it, if you knew you're gone tomorrow, what would you share with your kids? What would you share with close friends? What would you want people to know? And that's exactly what Christ is talking about with them, and it's written here. So we have an understanding, too, about what Christ's desire is for us. And so John 15 talks about this notion of abiding. And you've heard me tell the story before, but, but um, uh, for me at home, I no longer have weed eater privileges unless Claudia is standing next to me because I do not differentiate often between a weed and a flower. And so a couple years ago, there's, there's, um, there's a plant called a clematis. So, okay, I've now dazzled you with my botany because I, I now know for sure what that one is. And so I was weed eating around the mailbox, and even I knew that I just cut that clematis off at the root, okay? And so, of course, the way that I handled that was by not telling, because it, it, it still looked fine to me. But about two, three days later, it was pretty obvious what had happened because that clematis started to just wilt. And the reason it wilted is because it was cut off from the root. It was cut off from the source of the power. So Paul then, Christ then, in talking with them, starting in verse 9, he starts telling them that, that, that the Father has loved him and that he loves us and that he has shared with the disciples and therefore shared with us all that God had taught him. And that's what he's passing on. And so he says to them, starting in verse 14, and this is just amazing, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love one another. So that notion about service, that notion about care, that notion about shalom, that notion about love is what is at the heart of doing good work. Now it's interesting because sometimes people say, Larry Lloyd is a really dear friend of mine for a number of years, and he has been involved in developing a wide range of different urban ministries and has been involved in developing a, a wide range of ways of connecting people to the gospel within the city. And he said that he, he has times where people will come and sit down with him and they'll say, look, I just want to be a nonprofit work. And for some, that's absolutely the right thing. But for others, I want to be a nonprofit work because what I do isn't meaningful. I want to do something that's meaningful. And yet for Larry, what he talks with each person who comes to see him, is saying it's not so much whether what you're doing is meaningful, but rather how you're doing what you're doing. And so there are a variety of ways that we serve, and there are a variety of ways we bring the shalom, and there's a variety of ways in which we can love people. But this notion of the happiness literature that says we want a life that has meaning and purpose, and we want to leave a legacy, 
That's what Christ is saying here. He says, he says the core of it is to bear good fruit, fruit that will last. And the fruit that lasts is relational. So, good fruit, bearing good fruit, good work. We're Christ's hands and feet. We're God's hands and feet. We're called to be shalom bringers. And we're called to be servants. Which really sounds really good to us when it's going really well or others are noticing that. Not so hot when we run into some things that just are difficult to know what to do or how best to do it. And we'll get to that in a minute. The second thing that Paul says pleases God in this particular passage. It says that God is pleased when we grow in the knowledge of him. And this notion of knowledge for Paul was never philosophical argument. He could make the philosophical argument in terms of being able to talk about Christ and talk about God. He did that in Rome and other places in terms of debating uh, in, in an apologetic kind of way. Apologetic meaning understanding and the credibility of the gospel, the philosophical underpinnings. But it wasn't for him that, it wasn't that term that he means here, nor is it just kind of intellectual assent. One of the things for those of us who are evangelical Christians is that there's a temptation within the evangelical community to define conversion or to define faith or define whether you're a Christian by what you can articulate in terms of uh, your, your creed or in terms of, you know, I'm a sinner, God saved me, boom, 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 down the line, okay? And that is crucial. I'm not saying that it's not. But the thing is, is that the question is, is if it's merely intellectual assent, where is the fruit that comes from that belief? And so you see within the gospel, you see within the Christian message, now, we get all uptight about saying, oh, it's not works performance, and it's not. But that question is, if I'm a Christ follower, in what ways does my life over time begin to be transformed? And the literature on comparing evangelical Christians against the world is there's no difference in racism, money, divorce rate, and several other factors down the line. Now, we're all sinners, so it's not saying, oh, my gosh, those people aren't saved. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is, is that it's important for us to take a look at this notion about what does it mean to know God. And the knowing that Paul is talking about is that relational connection, not the intellectual assent. And so as a result, he's saying God is pleased when we seek to have a connected relationship with him. Now, the other thing we tend to do in Western culture is to, is to talk about my personal relationship with God. Okay? And we do. Paul says in, in, in Romans 12 that we're to present our body as a living sacrifice. So there is an individual decision made about following Christ. But that decision is lived out in community. So Paul is talking here, not to just the individuals at the church, but he's talking to the church there and saying this notion about growing in knowledge of him. Another speaker who has been here a couple times for the Christian Life Conference uh, is Tim Keller. And Tim told this story about C.S. Lewis, where C.S., and what Tim was talking about is saying, you know, it's really important to be connected to a church body, even if you're really disappointed with a particular body, because none of us, you know, when you know the underbelly of the church, none of it's perfect. 
But he also was talking about the importance for us as Christians of being connected to more intimate relationship. And some of you are in small groups. Some of you have people you talk to. But here's what he said. Here's the example he used from C.S. Lewis. He said that C.S. Lewis had these two friends, and the three of them met together on a pretty regular basis. And he said that one of the friends died. And so in grieving that, one of the things that C.S. Lewis thought is he thought, okay, the, the, the fellow who remains, he and I will get to know each other even better because it'll just be the two of us. But he said what he found out was that he ended up knowing his other friend less because he didn't get to know that friend through the eyes of the fellow who had died. And so if you think about that, this notion of knowledge of God, how do we gain that? We think a lot more in our Western culture about about the spiritual disciplines that are much more private, uh, our prayer, which is so important. And, and, and our connection to God through our devotions or through our Bible, it's all really crucial. But that notion about being in connection with others and to say, I don't get what this passage means, or to be able to say, how do you see God at work in these ways? And so that privilege we have as part of the body, iron sharpens iron. And sometimes when it comes to money, faith, sex, there are certain topics that's kind of like, yeah, I don't need to talk about that with you. But the thing is, is what Paul's saying is that part of this growing in knowledge is that sense of us who are all together being Christ followers, looking to gain that sense of who God is and what that means, that living that out in community is such a crucial part of what that looks like. So what does it mean to know God? I have two sons, one, both who are in their 30s. And uh, when our oldest, David, was 16, He'd gotten his driver's license, and this was back before the, the laws as they are now. And it's about 10.30 uh, on, a, on a weekend night, and our phone rings. And Claudia answers the phone. We're both in bed. She answers the phone, and she says, hello? And then she just sits bolt up. She goes, yes, uh-huh, okay, all right, thank you. Hangs up. I say, who is that? She says, it was the police. Oh, Okay. And what had happened was, is that David had been driving down through Overton Square, and you know, it goes from 40 to 20, and he hadn't slowed down, and he'd gotten pulled over. The other kids who were in the car, he had it pretty loaded. The girls were praying, and the boys were scoffing. But, um, and after the girls baked him cookies, the guys just ragged him for a while. But the policeman said to him, he said, look, I can do one of two things. I can write you a ticket, or we can call your folks. And so he said, well, call my folks. And so in getting that call, I said after, I said to Claudia, David was planning to spend the night at somebody's house. And I said to her, I said, man, what do you think we ought to do tomorrow when he comes home? I mean, how should we handle this? And she said, oh, no. She said, he'll be right home. I said, no, he won't. He's he's staying over at his friend's house. And she says this. I'll never forget it. She said, I know my son. He'll be home within the hour. Sure enough, he was home within the hour. I mean, she knew him. She knew what would take place. And that's what God, see, the other reason to know him is because otherwise we see God through our own life experiences. And so we project God as what we have had in our own life experiences. But God is separate from us. We're created by him. And so that knowing comes through the spiritual disciplines. And the knowing comes through taking that next step of faith and kind of seeing what happens next. The knowledge grows by being connected to each other and asking each other, What does it mean for us to know him better? 
And isn't that amazing that God is pleased when we want to know him? The God of the Old Testament, before Christ came, you had the Holy of Holies, and you had, they couldn't even say God's name because there was such a reverence. And to have that sense of being able to be connected, that thought of a God, it was really radical and is radical in many ways. Okay, the third thing that Paul says is he says God's pleased when we are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. You know, that's where a lot of times I think we get tripped up of being worried about what God thinks about us. Because we know how little patience we have sometimes for others and for ourselves, And we know sometimes how easy it is for us to cave in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so what Paul is saying is, is God knows our hearts. God knows our fragility. God knows, despite our best efforts, we never quite measure up. Think about this for a second. In Matthew 5, there's what are called the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are, and then different phrases. And that blessed are is really that notion about how fortunate you are, how lucky you are, how great it is that what follows. And of the Beatitudes, there's several in there. You're like, yeah, that sounds good to me. I want to be lucky that way. Boy, I'm fortunate that's part of it. But, you know, think about this for a second. If you are going to do a tile job, whether it's kind of retiling a bathroom or, or tiling a floor, do you know what the number one thing to make that job successful is? Hiring the right person. No, that's not it. <laughs> what makes a tile job successful, so I've been told, so I've been told, is this. That first tile has to be laid exactly right because the whole job radiates from that particular tile. So the first tile, just a little bit off, it's not noticed at first, but over the course of laying that tile, it begins to see that it's more and more off of what it should be. So when you look at the Beatitudes, what's the anchor Beatitude? What's the first one that's laid? It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that for a second. What that literally means, it says, blessed are you when you know of your poverty. Blessed are you when you see how far you fall short. Blessed are you when, it's like, wait a minute, how am I fortunate? to be in poverty, okay? What's poverty? Poverty is the recognition that there's something essential for life that we cannot provide for ourselves. okay? So somebody who cannot provide food, somebody who cannot provide safety, somebody who cannot provide some of these things that are essential for life as human beings, that's poverty. And Christ is saying how fortunate you are when you recognize your poverty. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Okay, to me, I think about three things. First of all, it's a recognition that despite our best effort, we cannot ultimately control the most important things in life. We just can't. We have the illusion that we do, but at the end of the day, there is a gap between our effort and our outcome. You know, it's, it's probably 99.9% sure that you're going to make it from here to home or back to work, okay? But there's no guarantee to that. Or we have people we care about who start to move in different directions, and we long to be able to, 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 to get them back on the straight and narrow, but we can't. Or we can't control what happens in terms of how a job might go to a full extent, or what happens with our health, or what happens with... So this notion of blood and breath, our, our very life itself, It's given to us. It's out of our control. And yet we live with this illusion of control. And for those of us, when we experience traumatic events, 
all of a sudden our assumptive world kind of gets blown up. We've lived with kind of A plus B equals C. And we do have to have A plus B equals C. It creates a certain security for us. But now and then we run into in our lives where that doesn't work anymore. And we want the Proverbs, for example, we want those to be principles of truth as opposed to probabilities. Because we all know when we look at some of the Proverbs, it's like, okay, if I follow it this way, yeah, that increases the likelihood life will go well. But there's not that guarantee. Second of all, everything we have is a gift. You did not control what family you were born into, the nation you were born into. Now, all of us hopefully have taken the gift, skills, and abilities God's given us and maximized those to some extent. But you know what? At the end of the day, where did those gifts come from? Where did those opportunities come from? Where did the basic fundamentals of life come from? And then the third part about being in poverty is a recognition that despite my best effort, I cannot live up to my own standards, let alone God's. So this notion about poverty is a realization that at the end of the day, when it comes to living a life that's meaningful, everything I have is a gift. I have no control, ultimately, over how things turn out. And I don't live to my own standard, let alone God's. And we spend a lot of time developing these psychological defenses to not experience that. And Christ is saying how fortunate we are when we tell ourselves the truth about what it means to be a fallen creature. Because once we experience that, there is on one hand sometimes despair, but it leads to life because it makes us want to seek the kingdom. And so this notion about being strengthened, God knows by our own effort we can't measure up. Now it's interesting because there's a book that was just written very recently by Tim Keller on suffering. I think, it, I think the title is Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And he starts really in an interesting way because he says, throughout the world, many cultures and other religions have an understanding of suffering that's radically different than how we think about it in Western culture. In other cultures, there is a sense of saying that suffering is part of a refinement that suffering on the other side builds character. But in the midst of it, in the United States, the way we think about it is that we have our goals and objectives. We have life as we want to live it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then when there's a derailment, when there's suffering, that the suffering needs to be removed so I can get on with life as opposed to incorporated into my life. One of the things I've had the privilege of doing over the last about five years is I do some work with an organization out of California called the Headington Institute. They have contracts with um, various uh, humanitarian aid and development organizations, and I participate in going into high-risk environments to do staff training around um, uh, uh, stress and resilience and navigating difficult circumstances. And so that's taken me uh, frequently to places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and Sudan and Cambodia and Guatemala and a variety of other places where these guys are on the front line in that work. And when that work is with people who are nationals, people who are embedded in those countries, people of that culture, there's a difference in how suffering is discussed. Our prayer is, God, take this from me. Their prayer is, God, walk with me in the midst of these life circumstances. Now, there's not a thing wrong with praying to God to take something from me. It's exactly what his son said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this from me. I do not want to have to face what I'm about to face. So that is not sinful in any way to long for it to be taken away. Nor is it wrong to say, why is this happening? 
Because from a human point of view, we don't understand sometimes. And the psalmist over and over again says, why do the wicked prosper? Lord, why have you turned your back on me? So God wants that full relationship with us. But at the end of the day, suffering is a part of our human condition. And in some ways, again, I'm of an evangelical tradition too, but we've taken the Bible and we've westernized it to look for here's the four principles for this, or the three principles for that, or pray for this and X will happen, Y will happen. Okay? And it's not if you read the Bible with eyes wide open. It's not what the Bible says. 23rd Psalm, say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. That is a psalm that is so familiar to us, and it's a psalm that the focus is saying God surrounds us. He leads us. He walks with us. He is behind us bringing us home. But isn't it interesting, in the walking with us, it does not say that we're removed from the valley. It does not say we're removed from the enemy. It does not say anything other than God is with us in the midst of it. The other place we go, I think inappropriately, is Romans 8.28. It all works together for good. And it does within God's perspective. But if you read what Paul talks about before Romans 8.28, and you read what comes after, what Paul is talking about leading up to that verse is about the suffering that is in this world, about that creation groans, about our weaknesses, about what it's like to live in this world that is just topsy-turvy in our lives and around us. And then after that verse, it talks about that nothing can separate us from God's love, and it lists all these horrific things that happen in our world. So is God impotent? No. God walks with us in the midst of it. There's the promise that he leads us. There's a promise he walks with us. There's a promise that he's bringing us home. And sometimes we end up not knowing what to do in the midst of suffering. And we've moved, for many of us anyway, in our faith from kind of that health and wealth gospel. You know, if I just live the right principles, then God will bless me financially. God will make sure my health is good. And yet again, it's really not the stories when you look at the men and women in the the Bible. Some, Some do well, some not so well. But we mix up Western culture and Christianity. Now, if you don't mind, I just want to put my psychologist hat on for a minute. And that is, is that one area where I think we still wrestle as Christians is with the notion of mental and emotional health. That it's easy for us to think, if my life is God's, and I'm looking to live my life by his principles, then I ought not to feel anxious. I ought not to be depressed. The family ought to go just exactly the way the family should go, and all of those things like that. And so we're far more comfortable in asking for prayer to say, please pray for me and my family, or please pray for uh, this this, uh, cancer that I have. Please pray for... But it's very difficult for us sometimes to say to someone, please pray for me, I'm feeling incredibly depressed. Now, it's interesting because when you look at Scripture, Christ 
was fully God, fully man. He did not sin. But there's a reason that that Garden of Gethsemane story has so much, so many words given to it. In a grocery store, different companies fight for shelf space. Or in a magazine, writers uh, uh, fight for columns. The more columns, the more significant the story. The more shelf space, the more you sell. It's amazing how much of the Gospels talks about the Garden of Gethsemane story. And it talks about Christ, the, the, the 12, the 11, the crowd, the 11 in the garden, his three best friends, he prays alone. And he brought his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, not to teach him, in this case, spiritual lessons. Sometimes that's exactly why he had them with him. But in this case, he had them in, in order to have the support of his friends in the midst of what he was facing. Now, I'm glad that Peter, James, and John fell asleep, because if they'd done a really good job as, as friends, we'd say, well, if I had friends like Jesus, I could depend on them. But he came back a couple times to them and said, look, couldn't you stay awake? But we see in how he prays just the depth of the despair, of the struggle that he has, how he suffered in the midst of what it was that he was, was called to. You look at Elijah after a really good day at the office, where he, they beat the the, um, the prophets of Baal. And he gets on the other side of that depressed. And he feels weak and he withdraws. And God comes to him and kicks him in the butt and says, get going. No, he sends an angel twice to bring food to him, to tell him to rest, that God will catch up with him. Or Paul, for example, he, he wrote and he said, I, in, in 1 Corinthians, he said, I wish with you, I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We were afflicted on every side, conflict without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed, comfort us by the coming of Titus. And Paul talks about, in different places, his own depression. Paul, the last book he wrote is Second Timothy, Timothy, where he has done this great work, and now pretty much he's abandoned. Sitting in prison, things are going on that he can't do anything about. He asked Timothy if he would come to him, bring my coat before winter. And you see a certain sadness, a wondering, how did this all work out? as I've been a follower of Christ. Then we have the saints. We have, like, for example, Martin Luther. But Martin Luther likely was bipolar. Roland Bainton was his uh, biographer and talks a great deal about Luther's writings, of his exaltation and his depressions. And Luther himself would write about that. And it says, the reformer who penned a mighty fortress is our God. Martin Luther in 1527 wrote, For more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. According to Luther's famous biographer, Roland Bainton, Luther found himself subject to recurrent periods of exaltation and depression of spirit. Luther himself had written, and this is what he said, he said, the content of the depression was always the same, the loss of faith that God is good and that God is good to me. For those of us who experience depression, you know what that feels like to wonder about, is God good? Is God good to me? Or Charles Spurgeon, who was um, a famous evangelist, and there's so much that he writes that we, we read and we just appropriate in terms of just this notion about what it means to live out this life of faith. But he suffered from recurrent major depression and panic attack. There are many stories of him not being able to get up and preach in the midst of just feeling too anxious and immobilized. And he wrote to his congregation one time, and this is what he said. He said, I am the subject of depression of spirit 
so fearful that I hope none of you ever go to such extremes of wretchedness as I go through. He explained that during these depressions, every mental and spiritual labor had to be carried on under protest of spirit. There's a temptation for us to tell each other the good stuff and a temptation not to tell each other what it means to live this life fully human under God's grace. And Paul is saying that God is pleased when we allow ourselves to rely on him in the midst of these storms and the recognition that he walks with us, he understands our brokenness. And sometimes the healing comes and sometimes it doesn't. The 23rd Psalm, let me say this and we'll move on. If you look at it early on, it says, he leads me to beside still waters, he restores my soul. And then it talks about he walks with us and he follows behind. Sometimes when we are struggling internally, rather than just kind of going and thinking about that and then coming back and praying. For me, there's a beauty in where it says, he restores my soul, of stopping there in the midst of the psalm and asking the question, where does my soul need restoration? Where is it that I long for God's healing touch? And it allows you to look more deeply at what's going on and allows you to appropriate his grace, but it also allows you in humility to maybe let a brother or a sister come alongside in the midst of what's going on. Because there's nothing more lonely than image management. There's nothing more lonely at the end of the day than being successful, but at the cost of not knowing ourselves or being known. John Calvin said that. He said in his first two parts of the Institute, he said, without knowing God, we can't know ourselves. Without knowing ourselves, we can't know God. And so that idea of taking time to reflect Taking time to participate in the disciplines is huge. And finally, which is such an incredibly amazing verse, giving joyful thanks to the Lord who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. We live our lives off our resume. How are we doing with friendships? Am I getting ahead? And that's just part of who we are. It's part of what we do. But you know, think about it. Have you ever known someone who got early acceptance to college, or somebody who got early acceptance to medical school, or somebody said, here's the contract, you have the job as soon as you finish that internship. Or somebody says to you, yes, let's make plans for it. We'll meet together and have a blast three weeks from Saturday. This idea of being qualified, knowing that you're in, brings a tremendous relief because it allows us to release that notion of having to try to keep making it work. And this giving thanks to what we're qualified for is that we're qualified to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. As that Psalm 23 said, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're qualified. It takes away some of that pressure. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Donald Miller, an author in the book Blue Like Jazz, talked about a story he had heard about Navy SEALs who had gone in to rescue hostages. And I want to read you briefly that story, because I think it is a wonderful illustration of this notion about our having been rescued. Donald Miller, in his book, Blue Like Jazz, tells the story he heard of a covert operation by the Navy SEALs whose mission was the freeing of hostages in some dark part of the world. 
The team flew in by helicopter, made their way to the compound, and stormed into the room where the hostages had been imprisoned for months. The room was filthy and dark, and the hostages were curled up in a corner, terrified. When the SEALs entered the room, they heard the gasps of the hostages, and they stood at the door and called to the prisoners, telling them that they were Americans. The SEALs asked the hostages to follow them, but the hostages wouldn't. They sat on the floor and hid their eyes in fear. They were not of health, healthy mind, and they did not believe their rescuers were really Americans. The SEALs stood there, not knowing what to do. They couldn't possibly carry everyone out. One of the SEALs put down his weapon, took off his helmet, and curled up tightly next to the other hostages. He softened the look on his face and put his arm around them, and the Navy SEAL whispered that they were Americans and that they were there to rescue them. Will you follow us, he asked. The hero stood to his feet, and one of the hostages did the same, then another, until all of them were willing to go. And the story ends with all of the hostages safe on an American aircraft carrier. There is this war that goes on, and we've been rescued, and we've been brought into the kingdom of light. And the end result of that is we've been redeemed and we've been forgiven. And in the midst of that, how many times do you hear testimonies that somebody says, it was bad, God is good, it all worked out in the end? It doesn't all work out in the end in the way we say it. Or how many times have you heard people give testimonies, they say, I wasted my life and then I came to faith. No, we don't waste our lives. God redeems our experiences. God redeems our life. And there's a woman, for example, the woman in Luke 7, who was caught in uh, just totally embarrassing Simon and his friends who had Christ over to eat because she came in and she poured perfume everywhere and she cried with her tears and she wiped those tears with her hair. It's an incredibly sensual scene. And the Pharisees are just totally scandalized. They say, Christ can't be a prophet. Look at this. He doesn't even know what kind of woman's touching him. And Christ knew exactly who was touching him. And he says to Simon, hey, Two people owe money, one a lot, one a little. Both are forgiven. Who's going to love more? Simon says, the one who is forgiven more of the debt. And Simon says, Luke 7, 47, those big planes that fly over, he says, he who's been forgiven little loves little, or he who's been forgiven little, who has been, he's been forgiven much loves much. So when we see, when we understand that we've been redeemed, we see that we have been forgiven, it changes everything in terms of what it means for us to be Christ followers. We don't have time to, to, to go more deeply into that, but sometimes we think about forgiveness as a get out of jail, I'm so sorry I did that. And all we're doing is image managing, and that's human regret. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 talks about the difference between human regret and godly sorrow. Human regret is like, I just want to get out of this, but it's not a transformation of our heart. If you've hurt someone, the ability to sit down and say, here's what I did, here's the impact it had, what am I leaving out? For that, I am so sorry. And if and when I do that again, although I hope I do not, I'll be willing to make that apology again. So some of us in our pride have trouble asking for forgiveness, and therefore we have trouble thinking we need to be forgiven. But others of us have trouble in accepting forgiveness because we get caught in shame. How can God love me? after what I've done. And yet again, that's our projection of who we think God is, not the reality of who he is. 
So these are the things that I'd love to send with you today. These are four things that please God. And if you look at them, they're things that allow us to engage in life today in a very meaningful and very amazing way. Here's some questions for reflection, and you can read through those, but maybe those are things that would be kind of cool to talk with somebody else about. But I want to explain just for a second the very last thing that's on that, and that is a little grid when it comes to change in our life. A book that uh, uh, um, Dr. Seuss wrote was a book called The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Covens. It's a story about the king comes to the town, they all take their hats off to bow to the king in respect. Bartholomew is a kid, he takes his hat off, but there's a hat under the hat, under the hat, under the hat, under the hat. The 500 hats of Bartholomew Covens. If we try to change through self-criticism or through trying harder or by trying to break even, good luck with that. There's a hat under a hat under a hat. A better way to go at that is prayerfully to consider, I want to be the kind of person who what? So it's really thinking through, as this redeemed person, as a person who wants to be a participant in bringing the shalom, wanting to learn how best to love. I want to be a kind of person in my relationships, in my job, in my marriage, whatever it might be. Here's who I want to be. The second thing to look at is, and here is how that's currently true about me. Change comes through encouragement. God judged and then sent his son to provide grace. I want to be this kind of person, and here's how I'm living that out currently. And then the third part is, here's how I want to grow. So change is about becoming more and more and more fully human as we are created, conformed to the image of his son. And that comes through the work of the spirit. But it also comes from our partnership with God, where what we're saying is, this is the kind of person I'm called to be. And when we sin, when we're not that, then forgiveness and a re-going to the path in a way that allows us to say, I'm going to live this life out that's full of meaning and of purpose. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for every man in this room. Thank you, Father, that it's amazing how many lives in Memphis, Tennessee, and around the world are touched by this corporate group. Father, help us to live out our lives in community, to be known by each other as well as being known by you, and iron sharpening iron, and allowing ourselves to confess and to celebrate and to grow with each other. It's why you gave us community. Father, thank you that you are so in love with us and that you don't treat us as we deserve, but rather in your grace. You have incredible patience with us as you see us do our best to try and work towards growth. And then you step in and say, follow me. Let me restore your heart. Father, help us to learn to do that and help us to not be too self-critical when we see how far we fall short. These things we pray, Father, in your son's name. Amen.